What's this podcast spelled again? Into the paint. Into the paint. Because we're going hard into the paint. We're going hard in the paint. I'm your host, Anthony Tino. Welcome back. On this week's episode, we have Nick Hinman, who's a musician and friend of mine who I've known in London for several years. I'd like to start by saying a big thank you to everyone who listened to the show this week. I was kind of blown away by seeing listeners tuning in from different corners of the world. I felt very humble. I'm glad that um, I was able to get some feedback as well. The kind of outpour from social media was really amazing and actually already got sort of a few, I don't know if I'd call them reviews, but uh, some thoughts shared by some people I know and work with in the art world. One of them saying that the conversation was enjoyable, but also in a way somewhat complex and made them feel a bit more sad, disillusioned, and depressed about a life in creativity. I mean, there's a part of me that feels like the podcast is doing exactly what I've been saying it's meant to do forever. And then at the same time, I hope that the podcast is enjoyable, but it's a complex thing. So, we'll take it. Also this week, I actually was able to see Nick in person. It was his birthday. It was also my birthday week as well. Um, Spent some time bowling with Nick, and I sort of forgot how difficult bowling is. Um, But it's hard. It's really difficult. And I'll say, not the most delicious hot dog I've ever had. But it's kind of something that you have to do, I think, when you go bowling, you know, have a hot dog, get going. I actually only had one strike that night, but it was fun. Thanks for inviting me, Nick. Um, I had my own birthday party yesterday, which was, um, I don't know, sort of an attempt to not have a birthday surrounded by and fueled by booze. So I gathered a group of people at the Greenwich IKEA, that's Greenwich, London, and had sort of a pop-up drawing party in the Swedish restaurant. And I think I kind of messed up the invite because I was telling everyone it was going to convene in the cafe. And I stupidly had forgotten, and this goes to show you what kind of a Ikea novice I am that there's actually two places to eat in Ikea. Actually, depending on the Ikea, sometimes there's actually three. So there's a difference between the Ikea Swedish restaurant, the Ikea cafe, 
And then there's kind of like the hot dog section, but we were able to kind of move in between and there were meatballs, there were fish and chips, and it was kind of loosely Twin Peaks themed, though there was nothing there to really to really point towards Twin Peaks, but some of the drawings were kind of inspired by Twin Peaks in a way where sort of different um, small towns, kind of Pacific Northwest vibes, trees. I think there's something about Ikea and uh, Twin Peaks that has some kind of overlap. I think it's the Unheimlich, this kind of sense that you're both in a home, but then you're very much not in a home. And even when Ikea enters your own house, it kind of alters the space in this weird way. So I think it was an interesting, it was definitely really fun. Um, I think the next step is to take the drawings, um, create some kind of zine, artist book with the drawings, maybe think about how the book can intervene further into the Ikea layout or into Ikea design. But another idea I sort of had was maybe the Ikea pop-up becomes a monthly event that is somehow related to the podcast, Into the Paint sponsored, Into the Paint convened. I don't really want it to be an official thing. I don't know how many people are really up to coming out to Ikea, but anyway, it happened. I'm really happy about it, and I will say that a part of the inspiration for the Ikea drawing session was definitely the old um, Taco Bell pop-up drawings that used to be uh, convened by Jason Polin, 14th Street, Taco Bell in New York, and... And, you know, I know he was very close to a lot of people, especially in the artist book community, and I didn't know him well, and it was really sad when I saw him pass away. But I always loved that idea, and I kind of, I kind of hate the fact that I never really went to one, though I did sort of meet people coming in and out of them a few times, but it was an amazing thing, and I, I just loved this kind of, like, use of public space in a way that... Um, was also kind of privatized so right like a Taco Bell is not really a public space but it's certainly used as one so thinking about kind of Ikea like that I think there's some part of me that's obsessed with kind of like art in airports and thinking that Ikea feels like an airport so in a weird way Ikea has become my testing ground for thinking about public art in airports I think I ate too much I have also a pack of gummies from yesterday that I'm snacking on today as I'm working on the podcast kind of have a stomach ache I think I gotta lay off the um, lay off the Ikea products for a bit which shouldn't be that hard because I didn't really buy anything but um, we'll see So my conversation with Nick I thought was amazing. Nick is the second guest on the show. And I was was wondering if the second guest on the second show should really already be going into a different territory, which is really music. And whether or not I kind of want the overarching 
program of this show to be more so limited, well, not limited, but focused on visual artists. And I actually think in the spirit of the show, I think it's good that we sort of immediately start hearing from someone who's had a very professional life within music, because I think there's elements of it that seem very similar to anyone working in a creative field. But then there's also elements of it that are very unique to music. And um, for myself, music has been a big part of my life since I was a kid. And I'm getting back into it now in sort of a professional way. You can kind of hear seagulls outside of my studio right now. But um, it was great to talk to Nick and to think about um, sort of coming up in the same time. We definitely were in the same place uh, at the same time, so sort of like the late teens in New York. Uh, It was interesting to hear from him about his experience in L.A. and also sharing similar, I think, um, influences such as Suicide and Alan Vega, though I think Nick and I do have a slightly different approach to music too. But I love seeing Fast Money Music in London. I've been at most of their shows. I think I only missed one. Um, And also have just really liked hanging out with Nick in the last year. He has been really open in this conversation about uh, the trials and tribulations of coming up in a band and doing music professionally and balancing creativity with paying the bills. So I actually think this is kind of the the perfect next episode from that first one with Ben. But I don't want to do too much talking here. So I would like to present to you Nick Hinman. motorcycle trip I got back Friday nice and where'd you go went mostly to Wales but yeah just like kind of bopped around to a few different I hit like seven areas of outstanding natural beauty oh whoa as they like to call it just a national park here yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's designated by the Welsh government as a yeah, is I that think, like a UNESCO thing? Um, I think it's just like, yeah, what they call like a national park. I think they're in Britain and Wales. Yeah. I don't know what they call it in like Scotland, if they have a different name, or Ireland. And what was the deal with the um, the motorcycles? Did you rent them? Yeah. yeah. And your license is like you could ride any motorcycle? Yeah. That's sick. Yeah, it yeah. was not easy to get, but... Who'd you go with? My friend Kyle from LA yeah like we went to high school together um and he's been riding motorcycles for like 15 years but uh yeah I don't know I got I just decided like I kind of woke up one morning here and then just like you see so many scooters in London and it always just looks so fun and I've like ridden scooters on holiday and stuff and I kind of just woke up one day and I was like 
fuck it, I'm going to get my CBT, you know? Yeah. And I just like on a whim just signed up for the CBT course and then kind of forgot about it because you have to book all the stuff so far in advance. And then it came up and I got my, I passed my CBT and then like a week later I bought a Vespa. And then after having a Vespa, I was like, well, I might as well just get the full license. Mm-hmm. And then I wasn't going to just get a Vespa like full license. So I was like, well, I might as well get an unrestricted license. Yeah, yeah. So you could beef it on the highway kind of thing. Yeah, so you could just ride any motorcycle. Because yeah, yeah. otherwise you're like limited to whatever the licenses that you go for. So like if I got... That's why you basically see all the scooter riders here with just L plates. Yeah, Because right. they, they just passed their CBT. And then for two years they can just ride up to 125cc without mm. getting a real license. Mm-hmm. So it's like this eight-hour, one-day course that you have to do, and then you get your learner plate, and you can ride a motorcycle. You can ride anything up to 125cc for two years. Jesus. So you don't actually really have to know any like rules of the road or anything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's why like all the delivery guys and like deliver yeah delivery guys just have the L plate, so they just never actually do any of the tests to get a full license because they don't really have to. You just like can't have passengers and you can't ride anything bigger than 125. I think in the States, the, the rule is that you have, to, um, you have to be riding with someone with a full license. But the, uh, the loophole there is that you could just say, oh, they're like a mile down the road. Oh, like they're also... Yeah, they have to be within like a mile radius or something. (laughs) So if anyone gets stopped, you just say, oh, yeah, they they took off ahead of me kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'd like... Man, it was tough getting the full license. Like you have to do all these training days with like a licensed motorcycle training company because you, you legally can't even ride a bigger motorcycle on your own. So you have to do it through one of these training companies. Hmm. And then you do enough training that they're like, okay, you're ready for your mod one. And before you even do that, you have to pass your theory test. And then you can start training to do a module one test, which is like the slow maneuvers in a parking lot, which I failed my first time. (laughs) (laughs) It's tough though, man. It's like these uh, examiners just like breathing down your neck, you know? They want you to fail. Uh, I don't know. My instructor said that they want you to pass, but it doesn't feel like that at the test center, you know? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I finally passed my second time. And basically my friend Kyle and I were like talking about doing a motor, motor tri- motorcycle trip in Scotland if I could pass my test by the beginning of August. So yeah. it was like this mad dash of like... That's good. Then it gives you kind of like a deadline, yeah. like, you know, something to work towards. Totally. Yeah. And so I failed my first mod one, so I figured that I just totally fucked the trip. Because it's like all of the tests get so booked up. Like you can't, it's so hard to even book a test without using a motorcycle training company. Because they book all the tests up. Mm -hmm. Even like if you're trying to get your your driver's license for a car, like all the training companies book all the test slots and like hold them. Mm. So like you kind of (laughs) like have... For kind of corporate gigs, like people who are driving for... Like their job kind of thing? No, just like like anyone can book a test slot with the DVLA or DVSLA or whatever it's called. <laughs> That's the learner permit. The driver license something yeah. agency. Shit, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but the training company is the one. They book, they book up all the slots so that you kind of have to train through one of them. Hmm. Um, but yeah, anyway, the, another slot came up. I passed my module one on the second try. And then I was able to get 
a module two slot a week later. And that's the one where an examiner is behind you in an intercom. Are they sitting on the bike with you? <laughs> no. <laughs> that would be so sick if they were just like... I, correct, would, like, I would totally just fall. <laughs> arms around your waist. Yeah. Just like, hey, dude, take a left. <laughs> uh, no, they're on another motorcycle behind you. And then, but then, yeah, they're just like in your ear, just like, we'll just shout an instruction, you know? Mm. And then like... Some of it's like a free ride where they're like, follow signs towards Cheltenham or something. And then you just have to ride for 10 minutes on your own. Mm. Most people fail doing roundabouts. Oh, wow. Because it's just round, roundabouts can be just like so. Yeah, roundabouts are tricky. Especially for Americans because yeah. we don't really have that many. The British people. love the roundabout. I get it. It yeah. like it makes sense. You don't have to sit at a stoplight, but it's just like a bit of chaos for a second. You know right. What I mean? Yeah. It's like, where do I go? <laughs> It's just like trying to funnel into this like tornado of cars, you know? <laughs> it's like merging. That was always the thing that I felt yeah. like people... Actually, I think drivers in New York are good at merging. Yeah. Because I think to be a good driver in New York, you have to be able to like know when to step on the gas really fast or like... Yeah. I don't know. There's just kind of like that school of fish thing. Mm. Um, before you... Like before this past year, had you ever been into motorcycles? Did you or or no. scooters? No. no, I mean just like the occasional one on like a holiday where you yeah. don't need a license and they don't really care, you know? Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what like inspired me to do it. Probably like stopping drinking. And I was mm. like, I could just ride this at any point. Yeah, exactly. Know? Yeah, yeah. I could take it out at night. And... Yeah, I always thought that too. Um, I was like, I really want to get like a motorcycle license or something um, for, you know, parts of Europe. But it's like, but I would, I wanted that motorcycle license so that I could like go to the bar. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of like defeats the whole purpose. Yeah, totally. But but yeah, but not in California. Like, I guess, is there like a kind of biking, like scooter culture in California? Yeah, definitely motorcycle culture. Mm. Um I had some friends that had motorcycles in LA that like I would get on the back of, um, but yeah, I guess like it was something that I always wanted to do, but it was just like it kind of takes a bit of actually sitting down and like booking the test and like doing the training and like yeah, you know, so yeah, I don't know. It's kind of one thing that it was like impulse, like sign up for the course one morning here, mm-hmm. yeah, um, just to like have the CBT and then see if I want to get something. Not to get into like the nitty gritty minutia, <laughs> but because I know, I, you know, I have a driver's license from the States. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I could be wrong, but in order to get one of these, did you call it the CBT license? Yeah. Do you have to have a British driver's license? Do you have to go through the whole, because I know they don't, um, I know this is like super riveting conversation here, but I think that you need to get a British uh, license if you're going to drive after like a year. And I know in the States to get a motorcycle, or at least in New York to get a motorcycle license, you have to first have a driver's license or some shit. Here you just have to apply for a permit card. And which... you just have to be a fucking badass. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, yeah, you just have to apply for a permit. Like, I don't have my driver's license here. Mm. <clears throat> but I have 
I applied for a permit, which would allow me to drive a car with another person in it. Okay. So I have that. And then with that permit card, I was allowed to do the CBD, CBT for just, you know, being able to ride a scooter around yeah. by yourself. Yeah. I think you can ride up to 50cc with just like a permit. mm Without doing a CBT? Yeah, I think it, it's similar in a lot of places. Well, honestly, like yeah. a, a line bike is like faster than like, yeah, a, C, like a 50cc scooter, you know what I mean? I've done this research so many times <laughs> as if I'm like going to actually do it, but then I never do it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, but, um, well, yeah, that was kind of the same for me for a long time. But then, yeah, I kind of just made it, I didn't plan any holidays this summer. And I was like, I, my holiday will be this motorcycle trip if yeah. i can get my license because it's like ex- it's expensive to like do the whole process like yeah. it probably cost me over <clears throat> with all the training and everything like over a thousand pounds to get mm. the license but then you're saving on things like the insurance goes down and yeah, like petrol and stuff yeah i mean but my vespa's been in the shop for like three weeks so oh, no <laughs> do you use the shops over on um what is it Kind of, it's not Cam- Is it Cambridge Heath Road? I uh, have, I have yeah. brought it down there. So, yeah, I guess not to get into really boring. Wilco tires. <laughs> I always yeah. walk by Wilco tires. And I'm like, There's one right under the <clears throat> arches at the base of like the Bethnal Park. Yeah. Thing. I've had to roll my Vespa there twice because uh, the my key doesn't speak to the ignition and the immobilizer doesn't go off. Basically, this time my AirPods is so 2023, but my AirPods <laughs> demagnetized the fob in my Vespa key, and oh, so it no. didn't start speaking to the computer in the Vespa. Mm. So because they weren't talking, it wouldn't start up. And then, yeah, I had to wheel it to this place on Forest Road called East London Motorcycles, and they had a guy that could like hack a Vespa. So they like hacked the Vespa, but yeah. then the carburetor was having issues. I don't know. Ah, uh, what about um? Do you know Bolt Motorcycles in mm. Stoke Newington? So they used to have, um, I know Bolt because I used to go to the record store next door, which was called Zippo Records, and they used to have these like little parties in the, mm-hmm. um, but the guy who runs Bolt really knows his stuff too, I think. Yeah. I mean, there was always like folks outside um, like bringing weird like old bikes and kind of running yeah, yeah. around, but um yeah, it definitely seems like there's like a community of folks in London who are kind of into it. Yeah. Um, weirdly enough, there's a. I always walk by the Hell's Angels uh, club. On, oh, really? Uh, Hackney Road. Is it on Hackney Road? Yeah. Sick. Maybe you could uh, become <laughs> a member over there. How do With you become a, How do you become a Hell's Angel? I've always. I don't know. I think that. So unlike the motorcycle license, I think to become a Hell's Angel. That's, you have to just be like a fucking badass, right? There must be some like, some way that they You think initiate. this is a test? You have to like initiate into it somehow. Yeah, yeah. Like you gotta kill someone. I don't want to say too much. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say too much. Um, like you gotta kill a podcaster. You gotta kill a podcaster. <laughs> That that that's definitely the demographic. <laughs> but um, so this summer you you did the you did the um, motorcycle trip. Yeah. And are you working on any music now? Yeah, or? I tracked a whole new 
EP for Fast Money Music this summer. Right. So that I I pretty much finished tracking that right before the motorcycle trip. Okay, which was cool. cool. And actually, so um, I wanted to chat a little bit about Fast Money Music because um, you know was kind of catching up on on listening to everything that's out. Um, and you've actually released kind of a lot in the last year. Yeah. Um, so, and I noticed it was mostly, or at least what's available like on streaming is mostly, um, singles, right? So do you kind of think in singles or do you think in albums? Well, it was initially like a record that I made here in 2020 that was a 10 song LP that I kind of made for like my old project and then once I kind of finished it and was sitting on it for a while half of it I kind of wanted to move forward with something new here in London and half of it didn't really feel like the direction that I wanted to go in and the other you know so I kind of like turned what was a full record into like an EP of songs that really like meant something to me Hmm. and then just as far as like I think coming out of the gates with like a new project and releasing a full record is just kind of a lot to digest for people anyway. So I kind of turned it into an EP and then staggered songs from that EP out Mm. as singles. Yeah. Uh, I kind of think that's a smart, um, there's a smart way to do things actually because I think, um, you know, a lot of things like records, artist books, they kind of share this thing where it's like you have that moment of the launch, right? Where you can have a moment, whether it be like a big party or a big show or kind of like a convening of people. Mm-hmm. So to, to kind of like release things as singles kind of gives you kind of those multiple moments. Yeah. Do you think about it like that at all or? Yeah, yeah. I think so. I mean, like, it's just kind of the nature of the beast in this day and age of how people digest anything is like... In, you know, I mean, but this goes back to like the fifties. They were releasing singles. That's you know true. I mean? Yeah, like as like seven inch or you know. Like yeah, whatever. in a weird way, I actually think singles are. Yeah, I mean, if you think of the, the big like Beatles songs, none of those are really on records. Yeah, you know. I mean, the record concept was more of like a sixties seventies yeah. thing of like a body of work. Mm. Uh, and I mean, a lot of people will kind of argue that people don't really listen to full records anymore. Right. Know? Yeah. I mean, that's a thing too. When you have all of these albums, like, you know, right, right there on your phone and you're distracted and just commuting to work. Yeah. I, there's, I was thinking about it the other day too. Like I was listening to... I can't remember the album, but it's like, I was like, oh, I only listen to that one song. Yeah. And I'm always like, and every time I listen to that, I'm like, I should listen to the whole record. And then I start from the beginning and then I immediately, I'm like, no, I'm distracted. (laughs) (laughs) You know? But, um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, I noticed that that's an interesting, it's kind of an interesting take. And it seems like, it seems like the Fast Money Music singles are also very considered right like high production quality mm. really take your time with them yeah so like how long does it take you to 
to like produce a single, for example. And, and yeah, what's that process like? I guess it really depends. Like when I got to London in the beginning of 2020, like right before the pandemic, I kind of was sitting on, you know, 50 songs that could have made it on a record, you know? And then like, <clears throat> they're all in various degrees of like demo format. And then kind of my process has been, and it kind of, it just depends on the person really, or the artist, but I, I kind of need, or, you know, I like having another person to help bring it to that, that extra 10% at the end. Mm. Like I usually come in with pretty fully formed demo ideas, like recordings and stuff, but <clears throat> I, you know, generally want to record live drums re-record maybe some synth parts, re-record vocals, use nicer guitar amps, basically use it like a professional studio environment with like an engineer or a producer yeah. <clears throat> to talk about arrangements. Because like when I, I'll make a demo in a day and like listen to it a hundred times and then not listen to it for a while, I'm kind of stuck in that format where it's hard for me to think outside of the box. And mm. so like bringing that to another person and, ha and being like, hey, does this arrangement work? Or do you hear anything else? Because it's like they're hearing it for the first time, but I am yeah. al almost hearing it like a finished song. Mm. Um, and then in, in that way, you're kind of like, I always think it's helpful with creativity to kind of leave some things out of your own hands. I, I, yeah. You know, like collaboration in general. And I think, I think maybe a lot of people who are drawn to a certain style of playing music have that collaborative brain where sort of in the end you're going to create something together that is completely new because none of you could have done it on your own. Right? Totally. Um, I'm kind of, I like being kind of the guiding force of the first like 80% of something. It's at least when I'm writing for my own project mm. where I can kind of like sit with it and write and like kind of, develop it and then kind of hand it to you know bring it into a collaborative process near the end when it's like you know i've brought a producer engineer 10 songs 20 songs or whatever and like let's make you know let's make a five song ep yeah and then we'll bring in each demo and kind of listen through it and be like could this be better or could this be different right you know or like what do we want to change the length of this bridge or do we want to like change some chords here or do we want to play this differently or like you know yeah um and as far as your band goes um because fast money music it's like at least when i've seen you you all it's um it's eric hansen it's axel it's uh a, a, the drummer george yeah um sometimes you played with the saxophonist <clears throat> john yeah um are they or anna um, I think when I saw you, it was Anna. Um, are they involved with the record recording the parts, or are you are um, you recording the parts? It kind of depends. I mean, like I record most of it. Mm. I usually will like hire someone as a session drummer, mm. or you know, depending on who I'm recording with, let other pl people play guitar parts because I'm kind of like. I can I know my way around most instruments, but I wouldn't consider myself like a really good guitar player or yeah. like a good drummer. But I can mm. play drums and I can play guitar. Sure, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I can play keys, you know. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, I'll tr a lot of the times we'll use stems for my demos, 
Um, usually I'll have a session drummer play. I'll try and play the guitar parts that, because if I wrote them, I should be able to play them. Yeah. But a lot of the time, someone can probably play them better. Mm. Um, as far as like, you know, those band members, sometimes, you know, some of the stuff that we'll maybe write together, they've played on. A lot of the time I'll record it myself, you know. Because it, it is a band mentality, but it's kind of like a solo project with friends backing me up, you know right. what I mean? Yeah, that's an interesting thing I wanted to bring up too, because I know, at least in you know the interview you did um, uh, with Ticket Pass, you're talking a little bit about Fast Money Music being a very personal project. Yeah. Right? And um, I think the way I think about it is almost the way... Like, there are those bands that, yeah, we know that they are a collaboration, like, I don't know, Broken Social Scene or something like that. Yeah. Is, re- is like, 90% Kevin Drew. Right. Right? It's still kind of like... And it's weird they did an album that's, like, Broken Social Scene presents Kevin Drew. And I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck? Maybe that's your next thing, like, Fast Money Music presents... presents. Yeah, Nick yeah. Cannon. But, um... <laughs> So I wanted to talk a little bit about like how how you got to Fast Money Music as a personal project and maybe like how you're thinking about playing in bands has changed over the years or if or if that's always been kind of like how you how you come to it or like the band dynamic um like how important is that is having a central voice like a songwriter um how how's that been in your experience um <clears throat> Well, I kind of started off as a drummer in New York, so it was like I was playing drums in mostly this one band. I mean, I played drums in high school, and I played in like a Led Zeppelin cover band. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. But, yeah. uh, Were you called like the Black Dogs? We didn't even have a name, dude. We <laughs> oh, didn't have a vocalist yeah. either. It was just yeah. like instrumental Zeppelin covers, yeah. <laughs> uh, which was fun, you know? Yeah. Um, and then so, and I had a guitar, but I didn't really like... I don't know. I thought that drums was kind of my thing. And then like when I started playing in this band in New York, I kind of started to like want to get behind. I wrote a few songs in college and then I I wanted to like kind of get more behind the songwriting Mm -hmm. element of it. But there's only really so much you can do from behind a drum kit. Um, So I kind of just started writing songs for myself. And then um, that was around the time that I was moving from New York to L.A. Uh, And then I just started writing a whole bunch of songs when I was living in L.A., Um, half out of like creative necessity and just like having too much time on my hands basically uh and yeah i just started making all these demos and i started playing them for my friend and he uh we would like go skate and i'd be like dude do you want to hear the song that i just wrote (laughs) and he'd be like yeah sure and i would play it for him and he'd be like this is pretty sick and then like we would go skate another time and be like dude i just wrote another song and then like eventually it got to the point where I was like, dude, do you want to hear another song? And he's like, I'm not letting you play me another song unless I book you a show. <laughs> and so I was like, I kind of hesitated. And I was like, yeah, why not? You know, I've never kind of fronted anything. I'll tr- give it a shot. Um, and so he put me on a bill at Hyperion Tavern in like 2006. And I just like played tracks and had a guitar. And like, it was just absolute shit show. <laughs> Um, was it like off an iPod or something? No, it was like through my computer <laughs> okay. and I had like a like a 18 or like even less like 10 key MIDI keyboard that I was like playing tiny parts on. And, yeah. uh, it was just super goofy and really funny. 
And, uh, but I didn't really, you know, that was kind of like the beginning of my band in LA that kind of brought me to London, which was called Palm Springsteen. Yeah. Uh, and that was, um, it was interesting. I mean, I, I guess as far as band dynamics goes, like it started off as just me. And then I had a lot more friends that were like more experienced musicians of like had other projects that wanted to like get involved. And because I didn't really have that much experience fronting a band or even playing like live shows from anything besides like behind a drum kit, <clears throat> I didn't really have the self-confidence to be like, this is my project and like this mm. is like, I can be the like guiding force of this. You know what I mean? So I kind of like, when I would invite people to be a part of Palm Springsteen, I kind of like was easy, would easily like take kind of a side or backseat, even though it was still my project. It was like, I didn't really know what I was doing and I didn't really have the confidence to say that I did yet. I was kind of like flying by the seat of my pants, like right, learning, that's interesting. learning as I went. <clears throat> like I remember playing some like early shows in New York and just like not even knowing how to talk to the sound guy about like, you know, doing sound check, you know, like he was like saying things to me and I was like, had him having to ask the other band members like, and you were like, what's up my dude? <laughs> what's- check one, two, uh, <laughs> is this thing on? Um, and where were you playing in New York? Because Palm Palm Springsteen um, is, and for maybe folks who are listening at home, it's a pun on Palm Springs. Yeah. Um, Everyone fucking knows that. I don't know why (laughs) I'm trying, but um, that was your band in New York, right? It started in New York. Yeah. um, And then I kind of brought it back to L.A., Uh, because I was living in LA at the time when I started it, but kind of like went to New York to kind of play some live shows because it it was where I I had just been living. I had just moved from there. So I like knew a lot more of the venues in New York and kind of Mm. like went out there for a summer, put a band together there and played a bunch of shows out there. Um, And what do you think is a better city for, for being in a band? I mean, at the time, New York was super fun. It yeah. was like just kind of like we were playing a bunch of venues like around the East Village, and like and this was like late teens. Th- yeah, this was like two thousand six. Uh, oh, 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 okay, so like early aughts kind of thing. Uh, two, sorry, two thousand sixteen. Two thousand sixteen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we kind of played like the whole circuit, like around like Niagara, Berlin, Baby's All Right, mm-hmm. Mercury Lounge. Yeah. Um. I played at the Mercury Lounge once. Did actually. you? I filled in for someone. Um, the, these guys I know were in this band called Cosmonaut, and their drummer had a back injury. The bassist played the drums. And in three days, I learned their songs and just filled in on bass. But it was a super fun... I mean, that venue's great. Um, yeah, it was cool. Yeah. And I think... Yeah, it's interesting because like, if you think about like the time like kind of timelines here it's like the mid-teens you're also dealing with a couple classic venues in new york having kind of just closed right so like i think cbgb's last show was like 2006 or something yeah like 10 years before that like i remember going i saw a show there in like 2009 but it was like a fashion week event i think it was like i don't even know if john barbados still owns that or still leases yeah, that place. I think it's still in there, but um, but I did see a show there. Yeah, when it, I think it was 
it was like the John Barbados yeah. shop at that point, but it was like some fashion week thing. Yeah. Cause actually right on that corner, um, like when I was in college, like 2000, yeah, kind of like 2010, there was like the Yippie Cafe. Yeah. And like Bowery Poetry Club was still kind of a little bit, I, I don't want to say dingy. It was never really dingy, but it was just kind of raw. Right. And I knew these kids who, um, um, Say and Key Smith, uh, they lived around the corner and we used to take like a wheelbarrow from their place to go and play like the Bowery Poetry Club. Oh, and because they knew everybody, we, they'd actually like really pack the place. Yeah. But I think Bowery Poetry Club has kind of also changed a little bit. Um, like, I, I don't know, in, I haven't been there since, but from the outside, it looks a little bit more like uh, there's like a chandelier in there mm. and stuff, which is just different than it used to have like a dingy green room. Right. Um, where like yeah, when Say and Key would do shows there, we would like, um, <laughs> we would be like underage, but someone would bring like forties <laughs> green room in the back and stuff, and the sound guy always would like chase us out and be like, um, "Dude, forties are just such an American." Thing. I know <laughs> yeah. it's so awesome. Uh, I kind of miss just seeing them. <laughs> Like a bottle of old English. Like you weren't a teenager if you didn't drink a bottle of like Mickey's, like a forty yeah. of Mickey's or old English at some point. And that's all you needed. Yeah. Too. That that would last you like all of Friday night. Yeah. You know? And this it would actually... be so gross and flat <laughs> by like a halfway to three quarters down. Yeah. Just like backwash and Oh. But at that point you're wasted, so yeah. you could just keep going. Yeah. You know? There's a pl- there's a bookstore on Hackney Road, right over here, um, and it's embarrassing that I don't know its name, but they they show these really great. Um, they do like little artist book pop ups, and I, I'm kind of like just onto them. And I went in last week, and they had an empty forty mm-hmm. like in the corner, yeah, just like on display. That's amazing. Yeah, like an art piece. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they are art pieces they man. are every <laughs> single one um but sorry i kind of i kind of distracted us so so the, so 2016 you're doing palm springsteen you're in new york yeah playing some shows out there and how was that going and, and i think one of the things i'm interested in talking to you about a little bit as well is that you have this kind of like other practice which is kind of about sound and it's about producing music um, for kind of creative projects, which may not be necessarily like your band. Right. Right. So uh, at that time, how are you kind of like surviving in New York? What what kind of, you know, you've got the band struggle, but yeah. as we know, like, yeah, New York's a crazy expensive city. So how are you kind of, what's your life like in New York at that point? Well, I was living in L.A. technically. Like, my apartment was in L.A. at the time, and I was spending a summer in New York, so I was kind of, like, bouncing around, staying with friends. Yeah. Kind of just, like, playing shows. I was doing a bit of DJing, because that's kind of what I was doing, like, when I was still living in New York. Yeah. So I could, I kind of was able to, like, jump back into that a bit and make, like, a hundred bucks, you know, here and there, whatever. Yeah, big squirrel. Just to, like, get by. And then, like, I think in L.A. at the time I was... Doing quite a bit of bartending. Okay. I was. I remember I was working at the Ace Hotel as a as a bartender for a bit in this spot in Hollywood, and was kind of like 
was scraping by, basically. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, uh, I had initially, well, when I was living in New York, I went to an, an acting program at Stella Adler. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. <clears throat> and so when I moved, part of like the reason why I moved to LA was to kind of try and focus more on getting those kind of roles. Mm. Um, and the theatrical side of that is just so, you know, so competitive. But I was able to like get in on doing a bit of commercial stuff, which was like mm. help, you know, here and there pay the bills. And But you were interested in theater mostly? Yeah, I mean, I was trying yeah. to get like TV and film roles oh, okay. when I like first got out there. Yeah. Um, and that was part of the reason why I did so much writing is because I was just kind of waiting around, you know, like acting is one of those things where you just kind of have to wait around for an audition to fall into your lap to mm-hmm. like work on, yeah. you know, whereas music, you could wake up and work on it all day and yeah. go to sleep and do the same thing the next day, you know. It's kind of like one of those things where you're, you're your own creative force and you mm. can create whenever you want. You, you don't need anyone else to give you something to create, Yeah, you know. That's um, interesting. When you were, so you said you played drums in high school. Were you, were you doing acting and stuff when you were younger as well? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, what kind of, what was the interest there with acting? Like who, who were some of the, or maybe like what was some of the interest? inspiration yeah i mean i guess i was just like when i was living in new york i just kind of like i started to like have a lot more friends that were doing stuff in arts fields you know it's like when i i studied college when I, i went to college in oregon and studied a whole bunch of different stuff like you know where'd you go in university of oregon okay and i studied like creative writing and i studied like you know then political science and like all you know I studied like a bit of journalism but I never really like thought I don't know I guess I didn't have many friends at the time that were like actually just pursuing like their art you know it seemed like you had to like get a real job to like support you know right or like more of a conventional like career Mm -hmm. to like survive sure and so when I moved to New York and I saw people that were actually like pursuing like their art and their passions and whatever I realized that it was kind of something that you could do and it might not be easy but I decided that you know there was things that I was interested like music and acting that I wanted to like give more of a give more time to Mm. um huh do you think that there's an overlap between your interest in acting and the kind of spectacle of being in a band yeah I mean I think that every every like show is a bit of performance Mm, you know yeah i think it's like um it's really about you know when it comes down to you know acting is obviously a very nuanced and complicated field craft craft um but i think when it when you get down to it it's all about like being in the present moment you know what i mean Mm. and like believing what you're doing and like uh i think performance is a lot like that like performing your own music because it's like only happening in that moment and it's like about a connection with like either you and an audience or it can even be you and the music or whatever it is but it's about it's all about being present you know Mm -hmm. so like when you're when at least when i'm performing i feel like i kind of like i can kind of zero into like the performance and kind of like be present in that moment and it is, yeah, there's an element of of acting, but it's also just like, even acting at the same time is like being a version of yourself. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
I think there's a there's a perception that acting is um, is somehow like you're completely turning into some something that has nothing to do with you. I I mean, not that I'm a huge actor, but I took a real, you know, I was always kind of involved with theater as a kid uh, and a teenager, and I had this one um, acting teacher in high school, and it actually something clicked where I realized it actually wasn't about like faking something else. It was actually about like embodying something and then just kind of being it. I know that sounds a little woo-woo, no, that's true. No, but that's true. it just like it felt like a light bulb turned on and I suddenly kind of understood like what acting felt like at right. that point. Yeah. And so, you know, it sounds I don't want to make it sound like being in a band or being on stage is disingenuous like as if you're pretending to be something but do you feel like when you're performing there is a character or that there is is fast money music a is fast money music nick diff, you know like a specific guy i think it's like closest to me yeah than like i feel like palm springsteen is a bit more of like a facade you know, I think fast money music is more like me. Yeah. As just like, there is like a, like kind of a catharsis in performing, you know, kind of just like a, um, a release mm. of sorts of like, you know, cause there's like all this tension even before a show and then it's just like, it just happens and it's like this release of being in that present moment and like, yeah. you know, kind of performing so yeah i mean i don't know i guess i wouldn't really call it a character but it's definitely like it's definitely a version of me Mm. you know i think what i what i really enjoyed seeing and maybe we could talk a little bit about this show um was the fast money music show that you did at pelican house um which was a fundraiser event um music support uk i think was yeah yeah um, and I feel like the, the the performance you did was really, it was different than the other Fast Money music performances I've seen because it was like a very funny version of you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, like, I don't know how to describe it, but uh, I really liked that performance. But, um, but it also seems like, so what I wanted to touch upon with that show too is the fact that most of the Fast Money music shows that I've seen... I don't know if I've really missed any of them in London. Maybe there have been some... Did you come to the Shackawell one? Oh, that was that one was, I missed. Yeah. Oh, and I remember there was there was a conflict there, or else I would have been there. I'm a fan. <laughs> um, but they, they, they seem to all kind of also have this, like, DIY spirit, where a lot of the times it's like you're, put, you're putting the whole show together, you're bringing people together... The Music Support UK also came from sort of a personal place in mm-hmm. wanting to wanting to put on a show that also was linked to a charity, especially one that's personal to you. Um, and I'm wondering, yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about how Fast Money Music kind of connects to to those other bits that's maybe beyond just like the songwriting that's about community or... Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I really liked, you know, I mean, af- basically, like, getting here for the pandemic and then 
um, or right before the pandemic hit and then living through the pandemic here and missing live music for like two years or whatever and kind of sitting on some of these songs that I had made and like figuring out what this project was going to be and having to give it a name and then like by the time that it came around that I was ready to release some music um, and start playing some shows I really wanted to do kind of like a DIY kind of like for friends um, vibe like feeling you know just like local shows at like interesting venues that are maybe a bit off the beaten path or like something that you know is more of an interesting story of getting you know like playing the first show being playing it in basically at my studio in that yeah that was cool that photo you know the photo studio downstairs and using the hair salon on the roof of the studio as like the bar and them helping present it and then like the pelican house show doing that you know bringing the PA into that and getting Music Support UK involved um, and doing, you know, donating all the proceeds from this show to a charity that, you know, helps people with addiction and mental health mm-hmm. issues. So it's like, I think, yeah. And you raised like a uh, thousand pounds, like in yeah. one afternoon for yeah. that. Yeah, over a thousand pounds, yeah. which is great, you know. Um, yeah, it was great that. You know, doing the raffle and just like get so many people were it just like because of the cause and because of like it being local and like even, you know, the venue gave their time and like a lot of local businesses uh, donated either product or like, you know, services or whatever it was, mm-hmm. you know, because it was just it was cool to to put something together that people could get so behind like as yeah. a community, you know. And then also, like, the bands that played, like, the Sunglasses for Jaws guys that, like, kind of put together into, like, weird kraut rock set. Yeah, at the that beginning. was cool, yeah. And then, like, you know, um, uh, Tempest, like, Eric and, you know, Tama and those guys that, you know, did some acoustic songs. And it was just, like, an interesting way to see kind of some, like, more, like, local acts doing, mm-hmm. like, music in a different way. Yeah. For that one, at least. And, like, of course, you know, Fast Money Music has played more conventional venues, like, the Seabright or like Shacklewell. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it is really fun kind of making an event very kind of like unique and different. And that's yeah. something that's like a one-off because you could go to a show at, you know, any of these East London venues and mm. they're, they're, you know, they're unique. They're different bands playing different songs on different nights, but yeah. they're, it's kind of similar in the sense that it's the same venue doing a similar type of show, mm. you know? That show really felt like the bands wanted to hear each other. Yeah. Um, which is kind of a weird thing to say, but, like, I don't know. I think it also depends on which kind of communities you come up in, because I knew a lot of kids growing up who were more in the in kind of, like, punk or even kind of, like, emo scenes mm. on the East Coast who would be like, I love my friend's band. I'm going to go see him. <laughs> and I was always like, I don't know what was wrong with my friends in high school, but we always just like loved to hate each other's <laughs> bands. We were like, you suck. Yeah. And I, and for better or for worse, that's, like who's the worst band? that's still kind <laughs> of like this dark side of my personality, even though I, you know, I, at the end of the day, I'm obviously try to be supportive of my friends, but, um, what was nice about that show was, again, it had that feeling of, like, 
people were just kind of excited to like hang out with each other and see yeah. each other's music more than anything. It wasn't really like we're playing a gig tonight because we're doing the you know, we're doing the thing and doing the right. the, the the slog and we all just came from work and yeah. we're just trying to get paid and go home. Um, so that was really unique, I think, of that show. Well, yeah, yeah, and it was also like, even though, you know, Dave and Oscar ended up bringing a drum kit, it was supposed to be more of like an acoustic style yeah, vibe, you right. know. And um, yeah, the Overland too, my friend Eris played like his acoustic. He was like the true acoustic. Yeah, that was, that was a good set. That was a good set. Uh, which was super fun. And He's then, American as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. From yeah. Tucson. Is he here now or... He's everywhere. Man. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, I think he's in New York. He was just in Paris. But his cousin, so it's Eris and Daniel. Daniel lives here. Okay. And also has a band called Halos. Yeah. And then Eris and him have the Overland together. Right. And I went to see their show, and that's how I met John Woff, who plays sax in Fast Money Music. Mm. Um, when he's not playing sax in the 1975, which is... The majority of the time. <laughs> that's his, is that another group? That yeah, that's his oh, main okay, gig. Cool. Yeah, Fast Money Music is a reference to a suicide song. Yeah. Um, can we talk about how suicide and Alan Vega plays into uh, your influences? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, dude, I don't know if you've ever tried to come up with a band name, and it's it's simultaneously the most fun thing and the most frustrating thing yeah, at the same I'm, time. Yeah, I mean, I'm in that place right now, actually. Because it's super fun when you're just brainstorming, but yeah. when it comes down to, like, actually having to pick something, you want to, like, rip your hair out, yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Because, yeah. like, nothing feels right. I feel like it always kind of... Um... <laughs> It always kind of degenerates in, in like 10 seconds into be like, oh, what if we call ourselves like, yeah. you know, the idiots? I mean, it just at the end of the day, it's like, it doesn't really matter what you're called yeah. and it matters so much at the same time. Yeah, you know what right. I mean? Because until your brand develops to where the words lose a bit more of their meaning, you know, mm. uh, and it just means the band. But for a while, it's like people are really like, what's the band name? You yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it has to be something, I think, that you just kind of like saying. Yeah. Um, there's a band that uses the practice space that me and some people have been playing in recently. Um, um, shout out to Yorinda. Um, and they have a great band name. It's just one that you want to say over and over again. We were like, what are you guys called? And they're called Brides. <laughs> and I'm just like, Jesus, that's so fucking good. Yeah, it's sick. Um, but so Fast Money Music, and, and in a weird way, like Fast Money Music, like that as kind of like a Fast Money, like I think with the No Wave movement, there was this kind of, there, there definitely was this edge of, you know, being subversive of kind of like, you know, fast money is is not like a sustainable, wholesome idea, right? Yeah. But in a, in a way, I actually think that you're in this point in your life where you are very into sustainable, kind of slow producing, you know, produce things that you're passionate about. So there's this interesting paradox almost happening yeah. there. Um well, that was kind of what drew me towards the name, even from the beginning, was yeah. that, like, 
And I think at the time, uh, I was doing quite a bit of like cover songs for my publishing company. Yeah. That they were gonna pitch for like TV and film. Oh wow! So like that literally could be fast money music. Yeah, yeah, that kind of is. Um, but then at the same time, I was gearing up to release this EP of songs that were like very meaningful to me, which I knew wasn't gonna make me any money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so it's like, yeah, there's like a few levels of it. Mm. Um, I also love Roxy music and that kind of, when I, you know, I, I came up with like 500 different band names and had them all in a notes thing Yeah, and I just couldn't figure it out. And then like, yeah, I'm a huge Suicide fan too. And that I was listening to the second record and that song came on and I kind of just like read the words while I was listening to the song and I was like, damn, that's sick. Yeah. You know? And I love that as an acronym. And it kind of just like rolls off the tongue kind of well. Uh, and it, yeah, there was like the levels of kind of like the irony of like releasing all of this like heartfelt melancholic music and calling it fast money right. music. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, at the same time, yeah, just like something just clicked. And I was mm-hmm. like, I, I also had to eventually pick something. And yeah. I was just like, this is it. Yeah, and I had a I've had multiple people like, "Are you sure?" And I just had to be like, "Yes, like this is I'm it." Positive, yeah. Um, but do you do you feel was Alan Vega like getting back to the kind of performance aspect? Yeah, like you know, he was obviously like a very intense performer. Yeah, um, you could and and like I think No Wave definitely took a lot of influence kind of from performance art and there were like real overlaps you know yeah. at certain points um you know maybe even after that original no wave thing there was like mike kelly used to do weird performances with like sonic youth and stuff yeah um but it's alan vega how did is alan vega like a in influence on you uh, as a performer well yeah definitely yeah. i mean i think i mean you know suicide in general it's like I think the way that they kind of almost took like they they had a pop mentality but then made it this like kind of brutalist proto punk, you mm. know, kind of like very early synthesizer vibe. And like Alan Vega's kind of vocal approach was like a bit primal in in the way that he would just like yelp and scream. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? And I always kind of liked the punctuality of that and kind of like using his voice almost as an instrument but like more of like just making sounds and like mm-hmm. yells and screams and stuff. Uh, and there's like, there's an element of that that I really like. Um, and yeah, his solo stuff is really good. Like he has that record Saturn strip that was produced by Rick Ocasek from the cars mm. that I love. Um, and I think sonically that was just like a big influence on kind of some of uh, the early stuff and just like, yeah, I mean, Alan Vega, yeah, definitely. Like, it was it was easy to use Fast Money Music as a band name because of how much respect I have for yeah. like Suicide and Alan did Vega, you ever, and Martin Rev, and all that. Did you ever meet Alan Vega? Because he he passed away. He passed away but, in like 2016. Yeah, not that long ago, right? I mean, yeah. to me, that seems like not that long ago. But did you ever cross paths with him? Or? No, no, unfortunately yeah. not. It would have been cool to see them play. Yeah, I always think it's. Um, it's weird. I actually, like, of that scene, I knew someone in New York who had James Chance in her band. For oh, a while. sick! And um, 
I was I was like so excited to see James Chance, and yeah. she's like, "Come to my show. I'll, I'll introduce you to him afterwards." And um, you know, sometimes you meet one of these people that you've just like listened to and idolized, and they're like, "Oh, they're great." James Chance was so mean, and like <laughs> he was. Uh, I mean, I don't want to get into it like a negative thing, but I just it was it was weird. You know. They say don't meet your idols, right? Yeah. Yeah, but then, you know, then sometimes you're pleasantly surprised, you know. Yeah, I guess you just, you can meet them, just don't have big expectations for yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. It's like celebrity works in a weird way like that, too. Like, I guess what, it depends on what kind of mood you catch them in Yeah, as well. that's true. I, they call it like, um, what is it, a parasocial, parasocial relationship. Mm-hmm. When you kind of when you relate to someone's work or something to the point where you start to feel like you kind of know that person, right. you know, especially when we're talking about things like music, which are so personal, you know. Yeah. And I think it it does move people in a certain way. Like I don't know this year, and I know we've talked about this uh, here and there. I f- I feel heavy about the fact that it will be 20 years since Elliot Smith uh, died, you know, in in a way like that music to me has been so um, personal on, mm. on many levels that I almost feel like I know Elliot. And even though I was like 13 when it happened yeah. and didn't really know who he was, like right. I'm mourning a little bit this year, yeah. you know, and I'm also like... I'm also like, where's the 20th anniversary records and stuff, you know, and really shit. But um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, it's. I always think too. It's funny that like a lot of the, a lot of the musicians, not you know, not to get back to kind of like idol speak, but a lot of the musicians I grew up idolizing, then kind of become, then they're like sobering up becomes like. It's like when you're younger, you're like, oh, man, Lou Reed used to like do all these drugs and stuff, you know, yeah. and and then you get older and you're like, oh, man, Lou Reed like sobered up and started doing Tai Chi. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the same person, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, have you found that like the, have you found that your creative, your creativity with the outlets is, um. Yeah, have you found a difference with it, kind of like approaching it with like a more sober, clear um, approach? Um, I th- I actually have almost always written, done like a majority of my writing sober. Yeah, yeah. Like nothing that I ever wrote fucked up was any good. Yeah, was it know? was it the performing that would be? It was bad? like yeah, a bit of performing oh. and a bit of just like the lifestyle, just yeah, like hard the after and, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. like before and after shows like it was just that was you know it just wasn't sustainable yeah and it just like i don't know it was for people that can sustain it like great good for you but uh, you know i just i i found that it just like i didn't have control of it it just like had control of me you Mm -hmm. know and so like i tried moderating it for a long time and like quit doing harder drugs like in the beginning of the pandemic, but eventually just decided that I just couldn't moderate it. Mm. And so I decided to just give everything up. Yeah. Almost a year ago now. Well, that's good. And now you get to do things like motorcycle trips across <laughs> Wales, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. I yeah. mean, I think 
it's weird. It's a weird way to describe it, but my life has like not changed at all and changed so mm. much at the same time. Yeah, like I'm still doing all the same stuff, but just like with a clarity and like an intention, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't have for a long time. Mm. Um, and I think that that kind of lends itself to this new project because <clears throat> I'm not like trying to hide behind. I like a different alter ego or facade or like trying, you know, I, I thought I had developed this persona that like had to be partying or had to be drunk or had to be whatever. Right. And then, you know, cause you, a lot of the, a lot, you think maybe less so these days, but a lot of that stuff goes hand in hand, like the mm. playing mu- music and like hard partying. Yeah. You know, you know what it fucking blew my mind thinking about the other day? And I think this is kind of, this, this kind of plays into it. So, like, as kids of the 90s, like, the 60s was as long ago in the 90s as, like, the 90s is from now. Yeah. <laughs> like, for some reason, that blew my mind. Yeah. But when you think about it, it's like, yeah, when we were growing up in the 90s, it's like, it was not that long ago that, you know, a lot of the bands we we probably both started listening to were like, yeah, like doing the thing of the day, which mm. was like, you know, hard partying and stuff like that. Yeah. And I actually, it's interesting seeing, you know, younger creative people now not having necessarily gone through that same kind of struggle, not necessarily gone through that same kind of uh, romanticizing that kind of behavior. Yeah. Um, which is interesting and I think like healthy yeah. I mean, I think maybe, yeah, I'm not the best one to talk about this, but just having, you know, friends in creative industries who are in their mid-20s now definitely have a different outlook to, uh, they, they, they don't seem to have that same kind of, uh, like, self-destruction thing. Yeah. You know, that maybe, like, we were kind of the last, you know, born in the late 80s or early 90s and yeah. kind of coming of age then when... You know, there was still kind of those last couple bands that, I don't know, like Nirvana, things like this, where it's like we kind of remember the like destructive behavior, mm-hmm. you know, and that kind of leaves an imprint, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, I feel like it was, it was pretty much like hard partying from high school until like, you know. Until like last. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I started to tr- really try and moderate like a few years ago and then I just realized it, you know. I just couldn't do it. Yeah. You know, and yeah, but, and then it's also like, I think when you're dealing with like creative industries, um, or a creative practice, you know, I think one of the things that, uh, like going back to the music support UK show is sort of being, being aware and being supportive of folks who are kind of dealing with, addiction issues like there's yeah. sometimes you know there's a you know either I, I feel like a lot of people in our age uh, like still kind of have either had to deal with loss or to deal with like someone kind of like um, yeah really going through it with this stuff and right. um, yeah I don't know like it was it feels like you're you're also trying to do something that is um 
is not just like I'm feeling better, I'm I'm doing this for myself, but also trying to kind of like still be supportive for other folks who might be yeah. struggling with addiction or something like that. I mean, that's kind of what it's all about, I guess, because like you know, if you if you really just focus your energy on not drinking or not using or whatever it is, you're still just focusing your energy on that thing, you know? So it's like you need to fo- shift focus to helping other people or whatever it is that can, you know, mm. some something else that can, you know. Yeah. And for me, yeah, helping other people is a big yeah. part of that. And, like, that's why the music support show was so important to me and easy to get behind because it was, like, this nonprofit that sp- specifically works with people in the industry that I'm most familiar with, you know. Yeah helping people in music and live events with mental ill health and addiction issues. Yeah. Like they have booths at festivals and they, you know, it's like, um, a great team and it's like a small team and, you know, a a thousand over, you know, even, you know, a a thousand pounds that we raise for them will go like a long way. Yeah. Yeah. They have a breakdown of how many people that could potentially help, you Mm. know? And so, yeah, I mean that that really that show really meant a lot to me, and I you know I know that they were really appreciative of it, and it was just great to see the community in, like East London get behind it. Yeah, in a so lot of many people ways. came out for that. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of festivals, did you go to any festivals this uh, summer? Um, I did. I went to quite a. There's a lot of like London Park like weekend festivals. Yeah, that yeah. I went to. Like I saw Pulp at Finsbury Park, which was sick. Um, Wet Leg opened for them. 1975 did a Finsbury Park mm. kind of mini festival with a bunch of different bands. Did you see the Strokes? <clears throat> I saw the Strokes at All Points yeah. East. That was they were great. Um, did you do you know any of them? <coughs> um, no, no, not really. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I know like adjacent, you know, yeah, people part of their like management team and stuff like that. Um, I saw Primal Scream and Jesus and Mary Chain down at Crystal Palace. Oh, yeah, I saw you the day after that. Yeah, which was sick. Uh, yeah, man, there's so many good shows this summer. I mean, I didn't like. I missed a few, like Susie and the Banshees played like two nights oh, ago. Whoa. Uh, She's still kicking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Iggy Pop, I think, played the same night as Pulp did. Yeah. Um. But do you ever do the, like, because, like, people come to the UK for these summer festivals, like, like, Glastonbury. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, I wanted do you to, ever go to? I wanted to do Glastonbury. I just didn't, yeah. I didn't get my act together, literally. But uh, I did, I went down to The Great Escape earlier in the summer. I guess it was, like, the end of the spring, which was cool. I'd never been down to Bristol, so that was mm. fun. Uh, yeah, I hear people love Bristol, especially yeah, for cool music city. stuff. Yeah, uh, I'm trying. I yeah, definitely. I feel like there's more, but it's been such a blur. Yeah, do you ever play festivals in the? I played Austin City Limits mm. in 2019. Yeah, um, but that was pretty much it. Hopefully, I mean, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to release this EP by the end of the year, and then like roll over into the beginning of the new year. And it would be cool to play, get on maybe some for next, next year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so what are the 
what are the upcoming plans for FMM? Um, well, so I finished tracking a new EP, which should be mixed by the end of this month. And then planning to release a, a, a song by the beginning of November before Thanksgiving, which yeah. is such an important holiday here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah, kind of release a, another song or two over the course of the beginning of the new year. Yeah. Play some shows. Kind of just have fun with it. I mean, after that, I'd love to make a full record after doing EP, two mm. EPs. But um, I'm kind of just like going with whatever, wherever the wind takes me on this, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, I'm not, I'm just like can, keeping like the momentum going and just always working on something new for it. Yeah. Um, and trying not to like get too heady about where it's at or what's, you know, because it's so, because of like, this modern age it's like you release something and you immediately see like analytics for it and people can get so like discouraged or whatever it is mm. but you know this project for me is more like a personal like a place to like really just an outlet creatively to just keep putting stuff of you know that i want to put out it's yeah, not like yeah. I'm not putting it out out for like anyone else. You yeah, know what you I don't mean? Have pressure. Um, so I think that yeah, that relieves a lot of pressure. Yeah, in a way. Well, so um, that actually is something I wanted to touch on as well because I think one of the things you know I've been chatting to a lot of people about recently is sort of this like survival mechanisms for creative industries for art for music. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what creativity looks like when your project is not necessarily, uh, like, bottom line contingent, right? Like, right. when you're not, when you're not up against, like, this thing needs to pay the bills, yeah. you know, how things kind of look different. So, you know, I know that you do have, you do have, like, a more commercial practice. Right. Which I think is really interesting. Um and I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about what that's like, how that kind of started, and how that fits into your thinking about music. Um, what what pleasure do you get from that? Those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the commercial music stuff is really fun. Like having, you know, working with brands and production companies and advertising to like make bespoke compositions to fit their whatever they're creating is always fun because they will a lot of a lot of the time bring in a bunch of influences or like kind of reference tracks that I've never heard of or have no idea or you know sometimes I'm familiar with yeah and then kind of like exploring this whole new avenue of music that I probably wouldn't have ever gone down on my own and creating something new for a client is can be like really it can kind of open my brain up for my own creative, you know, for my own project, my own personal stuff. Yeah. Getting kind of sent down a rabbit hole of a different direction that I probably wouldn't have gotten yeah. got to on my own. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think there's, there's a part of me that doesn't necessarily see commercial work as inherently less creative. Yeah, you know, totally. um, it just It just feeds a different, I think, impulse. Right. Yeah, it's a bit more like problem solving. Like pu- it's like a bit more of a puzzle, I think. Yeah. Whereas, like, you know, when it's your own thing, it's more open ended, and it's like there's no rules or, 
you know, there's no cut downs or there's no, you know what I mean? There's yeah. no like limitations really. Whereas like, you know, you work within a certain sphere when you're doing something yeah. like this, With, you know, the commercial stuff, but in that sense, you know, it's, it's really fun and can be really rewarding at the same time. It reminds me of like sort of how just like you mentioned Brian Eno before and sort of like folks who have done a lot of like producing and things like, you know, um, it seems, yeah, it seems like kind of like one of those practices where it's, you know, you're kind of thinking about kind of like the periphery, like what's around it as well. Like, how do I create that tone? How do I create right. this texture? Yeah. And maybe it's making you better at thinking about how um, how you use different instruments, maybe not the instruments you're inclined to pick up. Yeah, definitely. Right? Yeah, know? a lot of like, it changes production yeah you know techniques a bit right um like i'm definitely like i'm not trying to make leather jacket sounds like on my personal project whereas like for some other things i'm like in front of a microphone like crunching leather and like you know what i mean yeah like making weird sound effects that's fun uh but that kind of stuff is fun you know i saw i don't know if it uh you must have posted it to social media there was like a some denim brands Oh yeah, um, and the 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 music was like perfect, like surf rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, like... I think their reference was was like a cramp song. Oh okay, yeah yeah yeah. It was kind of yeah somewhere in between like <laughs> rockabilly and yeah, but um, but yeah. And then how long have you been doing that kind of work? Um, I started doing kind of more of the like uh, writing to brief and like creating songs. Uh, for, you know, potentially for to be pitched for film, TV, and that kind of mm. stuff um, years ago. But then more recently in the past few years, started creating compositions to, like, already cut, mm. you know, film advertising, scoring, basically, yeah. type things. Um, yeah, and it's 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 been super fun. I think it's been, like, a great addition to mm. just, like, it's like a rising tide, musical tide, you know, lifting all these boats weirdly because you get a bit better at your production and you get a bit better at maybe mixing you yeah. get a bit better at like things you know things can all add themselves like mm. they all complement the other as as far as like your own personal creative stuff and then like some of the commercial more commercial stuff yeah they can both lend to one another you know and that's pretty much your full your full grind right it's kind of all now audio related it's not like you're going to work in the office some for some hedge fund no not anymore man (laughs) (laughs) yeah i quit all my venture capitalist (laughs) firms yeah there's no pivot into the finance world anytime soon no man yeah if you could pivot into one uh one other profession, doctor, lawyer, what, what are we talking? Well, on my visa, I'm legally not allowed to be a dentist or <laughs> okay. a doctor in training or a professional athlete. So those are probably the three things I would want to do here. You could be a lawyer. <laughs> I could be a lawyer. Or actually, you could also, you could be a delivery guy too. That's probably like <laughs> more next likely. Up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also might already be a delivery guy. I'm just not going <laughs> to announce it on this podcast. So, 
before we wrap it up, any upcoming shows that you want to plug or? Uh, there's nothing locked in as yeah. of yet. That's kind of TBC. Um, but I can I can confirm that there's new music on its way. And, right around uh, Thanksgiving. Yeah. So it's right being... as we carve into the turkey, we can kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Expect some FMM, you know, with the cranberry sauce. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, dude. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. sick. Into the Paint Podcast, Episode 2. Thank you so much, Nick, for being on the show. Looking forward to next week's episode where we're going to be interviewing Tamara Admoni, where she's going to be talking to us about her curatorial practice. If you enjoyed the show, please feel free to share. Remember that Into the Paint can be found wherever you find your podcasts, which includes major streaming platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We can also be found on Instagram at Into the Paint underscore podcast. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next week.